that there is no question that this technology should be used to, if in any way we can stop the killing this virus inflicts uh, so widely. Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, President of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I've been with ITIF for over a decade, and part of my job is making sure Rob doesn't forget to tell you that ITIF is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions. And in this episode, we're focusing on a pretty critical question now, and that's the issue of privacy in a time of global pandemic. This is a tough issue for a lot of people, Rob, and I think one that is easily misunderstood, actually. Yeah, there's so much misunderstanding about this in terms of tracking apps and how data is used. So it's really an important issue to delve down deeper into. Yeah, speaking for myself, if I didn't work at ITIF, I don't think I would know that de-identifying the information was commonplace. I think that there are a lot of people that actually believe CVS and Facebook, for example, know exactly who they are and are tracking their every move, not just using kind of de-identified data to feed them coupons or make decisions about inventory. No, that's absolutely right. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the issue of data and privacy. And now we're in this critical time where we're going to be using data, whether it's health data or tracking data, to help limit the pandemic spread and to potentially find cures. So we're really honored and delighted today to have a, a great guest with us, Amitai Etzioni. Amitai is a professor of international relations at the George Washington University. He's also director of the Institute for Communitarian Policy Studies and the founder of the Communitarian Network. And for those of you maybe not familiar with communitarianism, Amitai really is the godfather of this intellectual movement, which is a, a counter, if you will, to sort of the radical individualism that is you know, too often in our, in our political economy. He has served as a senior advisor in the Carter White House. He's taught at Columbia, Harvard Business School, UC Berkeley. And Amitai and I both had the pleasure to serve about a decade or so ago on the Markle Task Force on Homeland Security in the Information Age, where we delved into questions about how we could better use information to protect the homeland, but also protect civil liberties. He's the author of many, many books, The Act of Society, more recently, Security First for a Muscular Foreign Policy and the Common Good. So Amitai, thanks for joining us. Uh, well, it's a very good to work with you again. Uh, before we get to our topic, uh, in a similar situation, uh, Abraham Cardiner uh, once said, you know, there was a very, very rich introduction, but I'm, I'm embarrassed. I, I need to add one more detail. And then he paused and he said, I was analyzed by Sigmund Freud. And so I cannot match that. But uh, I do need to uh, imitate him by saying uh, this was an extremely extensive and generous introduction. But I still need to add that I wrote two books on privacy since this is our subject. Uh, one is called Limits of Privacy, and the other is called uh, Privacy in the Cyber Age. So having given extensive and unnecessarily long introduction to myself, uh, uh, how, how can I help? Well, 
First of all, thank you. That's my oversight. I've actually, I have to say, I've read one of those, Limits to Privacy. I thought it was a really eye-opening and important book. So the issue of civil liberties and privacy has come up. One particular place is the issue of how do we use technology today, our smartphones, to trace exposure and spread of, of COVID-19. You recently wrote an op-ed in the Hill newspaper, and you said, quote, one of the most effective ways for fighting the spread of the coronavirus is the use of surveillance and facial recognition technologies to track those infected and enforce the self-quarantine of them and those they've interacted with. That's certainly what Taiwan is doing, for example. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, by the way, you should add uh, uh, Israel to the list because they use the technology to track terrorists and they just decided to apply those very elaborate uh, tools they have to uh, fight the virus. And uh, as of today, I believe down to 20 cases. Now, let's start with the Constitution. Most people, when they talk about the right to privacy, some I think it's some kind of an absolute right. So let's say, first of all, about the uh, privacy, two things. First of all, is not as much as mentioned in the Constitution. Second, the basic idea is captured in the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution does not say there be no search. It means you cannot examine people, you cannot examine their good. It says there be no search, no unreasonable searches. That means on the face of it, the Fourth Amendment recognizes that there's a whole category of reasonable searches. In a moment, I'll come out what those are. But this is really fairly exceptional. From all the rights listed in the Constitution, most of them are uh, worded in an absolute manner like the first amendment say, Congress shall make no law which violates your right to free speech. There are no qualifications. The fourth amendment is one of the two amendments which immediately from the start tells you there are searches, violation, so-called violation of privacy, which are completely legal and legitimate. Now, what are those? those that you uh, you kindly referred to communitarianism is those where there is a strong compelling public interest or the common good so the courts in very very large number of cases they, they, the courts use a different term they don't talk about the common good they talk about the public interest but it, time and time and time again they rule that when there is a compelling public interest uh, uh, privacy has to take a second seat. And uh, I won't go on and on, but let's just mention some major cases. One of the most uh, telling ones is about train engineers. Train engineers used to get high on drugs and alcohol and drive trains full of people off the tracks. So the court says you can test train engineers, which is a, which is a much larger violation of privacy and uh, tracking uh, their, their phone, and as you say, sometimes de-identifying, submitting them to a, a blood test or, or some other kind of test without prior suspicion, without particular suspicion, just because they're train engineers, and so on, so on, and goes. And let me close here by one telling example. 
in the, the days we used to travel by air, each day many hundred thousand Americans were searched as they go through the airports, violating their uh, so-called privacy. Because until 1973, airplanes were hijacked and then became terrorists, and the courts and the, and the overwhelming majority of the public said, of course, to stop terrorists and to stop skyjacking, we'll allow to be searched. So comes now the pandemics, which is killing uh, a thousand and thousand of, of people and submitting them to awful illness. There is no brainer that people are allowed to be uh, uh, tracked. Of course, we want to be sure that these powers are not abused. So we have to set up accountability mechanisms. But there is no question that this technology should be used to, if in any way we can stop the killing this virus inflicts uh, so widely. So Amitai, a number of, I think as you know, and you've written about Google and Apple have come out with a joint project to use Bluetooth technology on smartphones to so that a person who's turned that on, if they come down with COVID, it will automatically notify any cell phones that they've been in contact with or vice versa if they've come in contact with someone who has that. You know, it doesn't give any data to the government. It just really tells the person what happened. And yet there are privacy advocates who are saying, that these systems should be not turned on automatically by default, that individuals should choose to turn them on. And there's a third view, which you could say you have to have those on. What's your take on, on that question? What, what we know from HIV, contact tracing, is an ideal system doesn't tell you whom you got it from, because you don't need to know that. It just tells you you've been in, uh, in intimate contact with somebody, with somebody who is HIV, and therefore you should be tested. And, and so here again, I think I would prefer a system where uh, you don't need to know whom you were in, uh, in contact with, which may have given you the virus. All you need to know that you have been in contact, and therefore you should be tested and maybe treated. So I, I would prefer a, a system which does not uh, disclose the identity of the infected person, because it's unnecessary violation of privacy, which adds nothing to public safety. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's our position as well. I think the other question, though, is if you have this now on your app because you're using Apple and they put it on your phone uh, or an Android Google device, should they turn that on for you so that it's on all the time? Again, not identifying the person you got it from or any other information because the number of privacy advocates say that that system should be only opt-in if we choose to turn that on when we go outside we can do it but otherwise not again we seem to look at what's on both sides of the equation on one side of the equation is killing somebody you loved or killing members of your community on the other side this is like a, a equivalent of murder right we're talking about lives in, in uh, major danger. I'm not, it's not a mortal point. It's not some uh, one out of 100,000. It's a very high probability that you're going to kill somebody if you are infected and uh, come in close contact with them. So uh, on the one side is there a significant probability 
of major, major harm. On the other side is some privacy advocates concerns that, that somehow this may lead to uh, 1984, some kind of hypothetical uh, story of uh, government using this data to arrest dissenters or whatever. So uh, the, the, uh, the equation is so clearly favorable in this case, in this case, to a mandate contact tracing. By the way, it also the only way you can stop keeping the whole economy shut, uh, closed on. So aside from the health benefits, there's also a question of uh, uh, allowing people to earn their livelihood. All this is on one side. On the other side of the equation is a hypothetical danger. And so it seems to me uh, there are sometimes very difficult privacy choices. That is not one of them. Do you think that these platforms can do this within the boundaries of existing privacy laws? Or are you suggesting that, that we amend privacy laws? I know, I know that in some of your writings, you've suggested that we we even kind of propose a 90-day moratorium on some of the privacy laws. And I'm curious kind of how you would structure this in this time of crisis. I can't really completely answer that question because I'm not completely updated on the privacy laws concerning phones. There's some cases involved uh, which go to the question. Uh, some people argue that there is more f information in your phone than in any other place, like in, in your, I don't know, in your diary or you know, whatever, uh, in your social security file or something like this. And therefore, phones should deserve special protection. So I'm not uh, current on what the court said. But that's why I suggested, instead of just now going to court and waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on that, meanwhile we die, that we, we, we should suspend all relevant privacy laws for 90 days during the height of the pandemic so we can proceed with all necessary speed to do what we can to save lives. And meanwhile, the lawyers can uh, argue things out and if necessary, uh, Congress, which also is a slow-acting place, uh, can take action. But this is a, such a serious condition uh, that uh, uh, we, we should uh, avail ourselves to this very powerful, very effective tool. Again, look at what happened in South Korea, look what happened in, uh, in Taiwan, look at what happened in Israel, uh, and you see that that's really the only a reliable way to both stop the pandemic largely and reopen the economy. So for that reason, I say, uh, if there are laws which stand our way, uh, let's suspend them for 90 days while we work out either legal amendments or court cases. Amitai, I think you, you've seen, as most of us have, these reopen movements, these individuals with automatic weapons going into the Michigan legislature and people claiming that their civil liberties are being violated because they have to stay at home. You know, it strikes me that the privacy advocates are acting in a similar way. They're saying that my civil liberties are so important that I shouldn't have to have any sort of sacrifice, if you will. So in other words, both sides are, are embracing what you've termed you know, this radical individualism rather than thinking about the public interest or the public good. 
Do you, do you agree with that framing? Do you think that's right? Well, first of all, they are not only endangering the public interest, they endanger themselves and their loved ones. I, I started another op-ed the other day with a line, and a Republican president and one of the greatest philosophers of all times and uh, uh, one of the greatest jurists of all times uh, disagrees with these people. And I quoted an Abe Lincoln and uh, Mill, Mills and uh, Holmes all said, all of them said, uh, one way or another, that uh, your, your, your rights to privacy stop, your liberty stops when you start hurting others. So, so even libertarians, uh, I, I quoted Boas from the Cato Institute, even libertarian philosophers uh, agree, it's, it, uh, the phrase used to be that I, my right to extend my fist stops when it hits your nose. And, and so the, the, the notion that uh, liberty means I can do what I want, even if it harms others, uh, is not supported by, by anybody, uh, any thoughtful uh, uh, person. So uh, these people exist, of course, but in terms of ethics or, or legal tradition, uh, or even of the most diehard libertarians, uh, they have no leg to stand on. What do you make of this? I mean, where have we gotten to this point where there was always a balance? Even libertarians, as you point out, said, I can do what I want as long as it doesn't take your property or, or hurt you as an individual. And yet today we've moved to this world where privacy is seen as a fundamental human right. You know, what I find striking is now Europe is in a big conundrum because they've realized that the GDPR, the privacy regulation they put in place is actually standing in the way of them being able to use data to address the COVID pandemic crisis. And yet, a year ago, they said privacy is a fundamental human right. It trumps all other rights. Yes, they said that. But then if you looked at the text of that law, you recited the, the data uh, law. They don't call it the privacy, the, 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 the data protection law, I believe, something like this. <laughs> and they say privacy is a fundamental right, but there are six exceptions. So if, if it stands up to bear research, oh, well, no. If it stays in the way of national security, oh, well, no. If it stays in the way of, of uh, protect property rights and commerce, oh, no. So they already have six huge exceptions. And last but not least, they have what they call a, a compliance gap. So every time I go in Europe and I give a lecture about privacy, I always remember to ask the audience and ask them if it ever any one of them, as the law requires, have been asked for permission to use the data for secondary use. The idea of privacy is that you own the data, and therefore if somebody wants to use it beyond the original reason you gave it to them, they have to ask your permission for secondary use. And I haven't found yet anybody who has their hand. So, so A, they have huge exemptions, and B, that get away with having such a highfalutin notion of privacy, but not enforcing it. So uh, after a year, you're right there, kind of uh, struggling a bit. They will find within days that they, they will do contract tracing. In effect, they are introducing contract tracing 
in Germany, in Italy, and th that law will not stand in their way. There's a couple of issues here. There's the, there's the immediate issue, contact tracing, and limiting the spread of this, getting the spread rate below one so that it either dies out or gets very, very low. And then the second issue is really about treatment or vaccine. And there is a place where being able to share health data in a very rich format, including genetic data or genomics data, is very important. And yet under our health law, HIPAA, HIPAA is basically a, a structure where it is very, very difficult to share health data. Do you think we should be in a situation where most Americans are, again, going back to this opt-in, opt-out? It was up to me. I would be happy to have medical researchers use my health data. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever, as long as they don't publicize my personal information. Do you think we should be moving more in that direction so that we can share more health data, particularly now in a time of crisis? So uh, Jackie started by talking about de-identified data. So in contact tracing, de-identification uh, 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 might be difficult because if I tell you, you were in contact with somebody who has the illness, you may very quickly guess who that was. But what you're talking about uh, is very, very, very important. And that is uh, advancing our medical health research. And there we can use de-identified data. And while again, uh, privacy advocates come out with some, some examples that here and there, somebody used uh, uh, de-identified data and nevertheless, we're able to reverse engineer it and find out that there was one case out of millions in which somebody was identified. By and large, de-identified data and completely agree with you is essential always and especially in the crisis. You could see with health data being so sensitive that this would be a real challenge for people to kind of wrap their heads around. Is this one of the, you know, kind of to your earlier conversation, is this something that would be an opt-in, opt-out structure, or would it be kind of automatically shared by providers? Uh, if you get, if people can opt out, uh, we're going to get skewed samples and uh, the data be uh, basically useless. So we are approaching a, a hospitals or the Medicare database, and uh, we should be able to use that without having to approach individuals. There's an interesting study done once three years back by somebody at the Mayo Clinic who, who wanted to go back to everybody in the sample and ask their permission. And first of all, several people in the sample had died, and others uh, were in nursing homes and uh, with dementia and others refused to answer, and others they couldn't find. And they spent all their budget on trying to track people. In the end, they had a very skewed sample. If we take it serious, that uh, medical research is essential for us to get a vaccine, to get on top of that, and that we're going to use as strong a de-identifying de method as we can. No, we cannot uh, allow for opt-out. I want to just tie this all back together before we close to communitarianism. And maybe you could just give a couple of sentence definition of what you mean by that. But more importantly, it seems that we've gotten the balance between communitarianism and individualism wrong. We're, we're never going to be an Asian nation, many of them much more communitarian than we are. But it seems like we should get the balance better. 
to do things like what you're talking about, sharing medical data. And it seems like we are going in the opposite direction. Do you have thoughts on that? That is very well put. And yeah, I appreciate closing on that note. So uh, as you already implied, uh, communitarianism uh, comes in two major flavors. One is what some people call Asian communitarianism. I prefer to call it authoritarian communitarianism. That takes the position that the society is the only thing that matters, that individuals have basically no, basically no rights. And they are like, sometimes they say, like the cell in the body. The purpose of the cell has no rights or very significance. Its significance arises of its place in a larger organ, in a larger whole of the society. What I've been championing and uh, some of my colleagues and what got quite a bit of support from uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and, and, and served a major part in their re-election campaigns is uh, liberal communitarianism, which takes from the get-go the notion that we face two competing calls. One, individual rights, which are very, very inalienable, very important. And equally important is the concern for the common good. And the conversation starts, starts with the notion that we face two competing claims, the public good, the common, the common good, and individual rights. And then we go to this question we went into earlier. So how do we sort out which takes priority under what conditions? And we find that when there are, the violation of rights are minor and temporary, and again, to the public is huge, that the uh, common good should take precedent. And let's close here, as you very, very properly uh, put, it, put it, the American society keeps going forth and back between leaning more on the individualism side and more on a more perfect union on the, on the common good. In, in recent years, because the libertarian sentiments, the Tea, tea Party and, and such, we have tilted. Uh, way, way over to radical individualism. And the time that was anyhow had come to recorrect that uh, balance, not to an Asian communitarianism, but to a, a carefully crafted balance between rights and the common good. And the pandemic tells us it's time to somewhat give more leeway to the public good. You know, according to a Pew Research Center report that came out recently, six in 10 Americans and roughly 63 percent do not understand current privacy laws and government regulations, but three quarters, so 75 percent, favor more of it. So I think more Americans need to be reading your books. Well, I'm certainly not going to disagree with you there. (laughs) It's always a pleasure to work with you guys. You're doing great work. Thank you for including me and be safe. Amitai, thank you so much. This, as always, fascinating discussion with you. Encourage people to look at your work, read the op-ed, read your books. Great and needed insights onto where we need to go. Yes. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Then go to itif.org and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Also follow us on Twitter at ITIFDC. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn, too. Well, that's it for now, but we have more episodes coming up with great guests lined up to talk about issues like broadband, e-government, and where technology is going in this time of crisis. Please come back.